Charming little bugs, aren't they? We're going to begin a series today in the book of Joel. This will be a three-week series, and I'm excited about that. Go ahead and find your place, if you will, this morning in Joel chapter 1. series is entitled Plagues and Purpose. This is a study I went through in about six or eight weeks in our Sunday school class last year. Um, But the book of Joel is a fun book that has only three chapters, might only take up about three pages in your Bibles, but Joel packs a punch that I believe is still relative and relevant to us today. Plagues. Over the past three years or so, our world has been in an interesting season. Plague would probably be an appropriate word for many of the things that we have faced. I'll read a list that is not exhaustive. Sickness, people dying, political upheaval, catastrophe, economic uncertainty, inflation, heartbreak, fear, anxiety, depression, suicide, agenda, perversion, paralysis, plagues. That may not quite sum it up for you, but when you read through the Old Testament, God had a way of shaking up His people. And you know, when God wanted to shake up His people, He never really sent blessing baskets and fruit and manna and good times. He sent plagues. He sent devastation, he sent pestilence, he sent ruins and storms and sickness. When God wanted to get a hold of his people and shake them up, he sent problems, adversity, enemies. He sent plagues. Specifically, he sent the Egyptian bondage and the Red Sea in the wilderness. And then once they were on the brink of the promised land, they faced the Canaanites. And then in the promised land, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, He sent famine and drought and fire and serpents, false prophets and wicked kings. And by the way, this is what God sent to his own people when he wanted to get their attention. If the last three years have taught us anything, it ought to be that God is trying to get our attention as his people. Such a plague was headed to Judah roughly 800 years before the time of Jesus. Joel is a minor prophet whose name means the Lord is God. There's never been a time in our history as a people that we need a message like the Lord is God than we do today. World leaders are not God. I love America. America is not God. Aren't you glad that your 401k is not God? Democracy is not God. Public education is not God. So God, 800 years before Jesus, sends a man whose name means the Lord is God to deliver a message to his people. And before we read Joel's message, in a moment I'm going to have you stand. Keep keep looking for Joel, chapter 1. In a moment I'll have you stand and we'll read the first 12 verses. But before we do, there's a critical principle that you must understand before we begin. If you want, you can write it down. You can take notice of it. We're going to use it today. We're going to use it the next couple weeks. And you may use it for months and years ahead. The principle is this. God may allow a plague. He may even arrange one but he will never waste it. God may allow a plague to come to your life. There may be something coming your way, and God has the opportunity to stop it, but instead, he allows it. There are other instances in your life when God not only allows a plague, but he arranges one to come your way. He orchestrates it behind the scenes. He may allow a plague, and he may even arrange one, but it's never his intention to waste it. That's what we're going to see in Joel's message. There is purpose in the plan, there's purpose in the pain, and there's purpose in the plague. 
The problem is you've got to stick around long enough to find it. Jason, my marriage is not working out the way that I thought it would. Maybe stick around a little bit. You know, my kids are not turning out the way that I had hoped. They're in middle school now, or they're teenagers now, or they're 18 now. Just stick around a little bit. You know, Jason, this church has not really been the fit that I thought it was going to be for me. Just stick around for a little bit, because if you don't, then what you go through that's negative is wasted, and it is never his intention to waste anything. Okay, if you haven't found your place in Joel, just pretend that you have and stand with the rest of us. You may not find it if you haven't by now. Joel chapter 1. We're going to work our way through chapter 1 today, but to begin while you're standing, I'm just going to read a portion of verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen this morning. Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, ye elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are as lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white." Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the field languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Our series is entitled Plagues and Purpose, and this morning, our first installment, I have entitled, We Need a New Plague. We need a new plague. If you're a fan of the popular TV series, The Office, this is a classic quote from Dwight Schrute. He's walking into a crowded wedding that he did not anticipate a lot of people would be at. He didn't think these people were very popular. He didn't think they had a lot of friends. So he attends the wedding along with the other co-workers. And as he walks in, he says to Jim, why are all these people here? There's too many people on this earth. We need a new plague. Now, maybe you've never wished for a new plague on humanity as Dwight did, but I can promise you, all of you have been Dwight at some time or another in your life. You've all wondered, why are all these people here? Maybe you pulled in this morning and someone was in your space. We've got a good crowd for a June Sunday. Maybe, God forbid, someone was in your seat as you walked in this morning and you thought, why are all these people here? I have this thought, uh, anytime I go across the street to Chick-fil-A, they have uh, done away with the single drive through across the street at South Main's Chick-fil-A, and now they have a double drive through Is it helping? I don't know. I still wait about as long as I always have. I don't know about you, 
But I always think that. It doesn't matter what time of day I go to Chick-fil-A. I think, why are all these people here? And they're probably thinking, why are you here? Why are, why are you here? You're part of the problem too. Why are all these people here? We need a new plague. Judah is entering uh, a plague of epic proportions. When innocent, mild-mannered, little green grasshoppers start to turn red and yellow, you better watch out because they become bad dudes and they can team up on us. The plague of locusts in Joel's day wiped the nation of Judah out. I'll describe. It wiped them out physically because they felt unsafe outside. It wiped them out financially because there was no work. It wiped them out economically because there were no crops. It wiped them out nutritionally because there was no food. It wiped them out socially because there was nothing else to talk about but the plague, the pandemic. It wiped them out emotionally because spirits were wounded, hearts were broken, and dreams were crushed. It wiped them out spiritually because they had to have thought, we are the people of God. Does he not know what we're going through? Does he not care? It wiped them out psychologically because they had to have rationalized, how will we ever recover from this? For a moment there, as I read that list, you may not have known if I was talking about 800 B.C. Judah or 2023 America. Because we've, we've felt a lot of that. We've experienced a lot of that over the last few years. This plague did not come and go in a day. Rather, it was a process of unending deterioration. But remember, God may allow it. He may even arrange it. But it is not his tension, intention to waste it. There is always purpose in the plague. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to highlight two main points that we'll cover in chapter 1. Number one, we'll cover the first 12 verses. This is the word ruin. Ruin. Look again, if you will, at verse number three. He says, tell your children of it, and your, let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. The plague, just like the prophet, comes out of nowhere. Total obscurity. We don't know anything about Joel before his book. We really don't see him mentioned again after his book. Comes out of total obscurity, and a lot of times that's the nature of the bad stuff that you go through in your life. It just kind of hits you out of nowhere. You don't see it coming. You're not ready for it. You haven't anticipated it. Sudden sickness and loss, financial downturn, relationship struggles. Life has a way of hitting you out of nowhere. So Joel says, hey, listen up. Don't miss this. You're going to be talking about this for years to come, generations to come. You're going to tell your kids and your grandkids, and they're going to tell their grandkids and their kids. And generations will come asking you about what God did in the locust plague of your day. Don't miss what God is doing during this dark time in your history. It was an invasion and an absolute onslaught. Under this concept of ruin, there are four ways that the plagues invaded the lives of the nation of Judah and I believe there are the same four ways that plagues can invade our lives today. Letter A, under this point, we see that it was a perpetual devastation. It was a perpetual devastation. Some commentators suggest that this was not just one big locust plague, but rather it was four separate locust plagues. One came, and then another came, and then a third, and then a fourth there was no rest or reprieve or relief. Such are trials. Finish this statement. When it rains, it pours. It's the way that trials go. It's the way that life goes. You, you never have one appliance break at your house. It's always multiple. It's always uh, an appliance, and then it's, it's a vehicle, and then it's a kid broke his arm, and it, it's never ending. It's, it's perpetual devastation sometimes. Such are trials. 
These can be understood physically as well as metaphorically, but I believe, like many commentators, I believe this to be four different stages of locust plagues. The King James calls these the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. But the ESV, as we read a moment ago, calls these four stages the cutting locust, the swarming, the hopping, and the destroying. Stage one of any plague, the cutting locust stage, you have to think to yourself, this can't be happening. This is not real. This is not supposed to happen this way. This is supposed to happen to other people. It's not supposed to happen to me. We are tempted to cover our head and not tell anyone and pretend that everything we're going through is fine. This is fine. This is okay. The plague that I'm going through, the trial, the disaster that my life has become, it's all fine. It's okay. We don't want to admit weakness. Then we move to stage two of the locust, the swarming locust. This is when our trials and plagues that we face start to whittle away at our confidence, and we start to think things like, you know, if I was a stronger Christian, this wouldn't be happening to me. So-and-so doesn't seem to go through this. They're never sick. They, they never have anything not go their way. They're always projecting an image of opulence and wealth, and life seems to be going well for them. Maybe it's me. I'm, I'm the problem. We believe those lies. Stage three, the canker worm or the hopping locust. This is the stage that exposes the hurt and the anger. We begin to believe, now this is not my fault either. This is God's fault. This is, this is something that's so bad, it can't be explained any other way. It has to be God's fault. It has to be His fault that I'm going through what I'm going through. And then we get to stage four. Stage four is always the worst, the destroying locust. This is when we've been stripped completely bare and we live a life of total uncertainty. We start to say things like, all is vanity. All these wasted years, it's all been for nothing. When I consider the misfortune that Joel's people faced in 800 BC, it reminds me a little bit of what Job faced years earlier. You think about the life of Job, and Job lost everything in a day. He lost his kids, he lost his cattle, he lost his health, he lost his wealth. Job lost everything. But when you view Job's story through Joel's filter, there's a little bit of a mercy in what Job experienced in that it was all gone in a day. It wasn't the perpetual devastation that the people in Joel's day felt. It was a slow, painful death. By the time these plagues of locusts had swept through Judah, there was nothing left. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've experienced that kind of devastation in your life where you just feel like, I don't have anything left. I don't have anything left. I had this trial, and then after that passed, I had this trial, and then after that I had this one and this one and this one, and it just seems unending. I know of people like that. The feeling that the tough season will never end, it'll never return to normal. This was the audience to whom Joel was called to minister. I was in a, a counseling session a couple of weeks ago, and it was a, an event where a lady called in, and she needed to speak to someone right away. And I had some time, and I, I met with her, and she sat in my office for about an hour. I kid you not. She sat down, and uh, we kept the door cracked. She sat down, and I said, what brings you in today? That was all I said. For the next 50 minutes, she told me her story. She paused only to take a breath. I never interjected. I never interrupted her. I just listened. And about 30 minutes through her 50-minute discourse, I thought to myself, there is no way this is all true. There's no way. Now, I'm not telling you that I don't believe her. I believe everything she said to be 100% true. 
but it was hard to believe that something like this could happen to just one person. It was misfortune after misfortune, and then it was abuse after abuse, and it was a loss after a loss. And you begin to think, wow, this lady's been pounded with difficulty over the, the decades of her life. And there are people like that. They just, they don't need advice. They don't need counsel. They really just want to be heard and want you to listen. This lady that I met with then, she would have begged for Job's trials, at least the duration, because it was all over in one day. But the people to whom Joel was preaching in the passage we just read, they didn't get that luxury. Some of the people that are listening today in this audience, in the previous service and online, they feel like uh, they too have been beaten down for weeks and months and years. And you can relate. It's devastation, but it's, it's perpetual. It, it doesn't stop. It's chronic pain. It's long-lasting. There's no end in sight. And sometimes the enemy uses that tactic of perpetual devastation. Letter B is progressive distraction. Progressive distraction. Sometimes plagues invade us slowly, and we don't notice it at first. Verse 5 says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. Wake up. Sometimes we wake up to relational failure. Sometimes we wake up to news that something has happened or someone is gone. Sometimes we wake up to depleted finances or isolation or emptiness, and it leaves us thinking to ourselves, what happened? How did I get here? You ever sat with that? How did I get here? How did this happen? What is to be done with my life from here? These were the little grasshoppers over time and over decades that had mounted up. They weren't major distractions. They were progressive little ones that had accumulated. I read about this one type of locust a couple of weeks ago that is pure evil. It, it is born underground, and it lives completely underground, sometimes for years. If you were watching this plot of ground where these grasshoppers and these locusts were born, you wouldn't know anything happened. They, they can be born underground and live underground for years, and no one ever notices and what this particular type of locusts do is they then emerge for one season and they swarm with others of its kind and then they die. It's a progressive distraction and you don't even know it's there. Sometimes you deal with things that are under the surface. Maybe you don't know it, maybe you don't see it, maybe you just don't want to talk about it, but it, it's under the surface, it's lingering, it's there. Silently awaiting its season of distraction it always comes at the time when you least expect it. A third way that plagues can invade, letter C, is powerful destruction. Powerful destruction. This can be like a sudden illness or the sudden death of a loved one when there's no stopping it from coming. When death has rocked someone to their core, I've heard people say statements like this, I'll never get over this. Or, my life will never be the same because of this. We had a family this week that I, I got to go to the hospital right after um, a lady died, and I sat there with her brother and her husband and her son, and I heard statements like that. I'll never get over this loss, and life will never be the same, and in that moment, there is nothing that I can say or do that will make the situation any better. You know what you do in those situations? You just sit there, and you listen, and you're there for those people. I can't bring anyone back. I can't heal any sicknesses. If I could, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be at some hospital healing someone of something. I can't do it. I can't do anything about it because I know what they say is right. My life will never be the same. 
That's true. I'll never fully get over this. That's true. Look at verse number six. He says, for a nation, he's talking about the locusts, a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are as lion's teeth. He's saying, ultimately, we are no match for the things that we are going through in life. We're defenseless to the plagues that we're facing. Verse 7, he says, It's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. From time to time, we'll have missionaries send in their reports to us. And, and most of the reports are very positive, but occasionally we'll have a missionary send us pictures of devastation that they have faced in their countries. In the last couple of years, uh, one of our missionaries, Roger Schmidt in Mozambique, I think they had, I think it was a cyclone that came through. Look at this photo uh, that Roger shared with us. Uh, this is a, a devastation that has wiped through the island of Mozambique. You see the roots of that tree are, are bigger than the two men. Roger's there on the left. Uh, who we've supported for a number of years. And I could show you 10 more pictures just like this of devastation that was faced in Mozambique. And you look at photos like that and you think, how can they ever recover from something like this? How can they recover from what they've lost? How, how can they fix this? How can they repair this? There's another photo of the missionary. This is a missionary that we support in uh, the Philippines. And this is a main road through there that's been flooded. I could show you a video of men in their streets walking through water waist deep, uh, just trying to pull people out of houses, just trying to recover what they have. This is devastation that they faced. And when you look at pictures like this, you think, how could anyone ever grow here again? How could anything grow? How can there be any vegetation? How can it ever come back to life? And the people in Judah in 800 BC were asking the same questions. This was the death of their dreams, to lose what they lost. There are people here today that have experienced loss, and as they consider all they've lost, they feel like they've lost more than they will ever recover again. There are people in this room that I know who are going through that. I feel like I've lost more than I will ever be able to recover. When God used locusts in the Bible, he always did so to demonstrate his power. There are more than 80 varieties of locusts, and even today, the enemy seeks to destroy you in a variety of ways. It's hard to calculate the number of locusts in a swarm, but I've read that they can move 100 trillion strong through Africa and Asia and Australia. Some of their swarms measure 30 miles long and 5 miles wide. To scale, that would be like a swarm attacking us and being in downtown Winston and downtown Greensboro at the same time five miles wide, and everything in between. One ecologist actually said this of a swarm of locusts. He said a swarm of locusts could be the size of Manhattan. And in one day, that swarm can consume as much food in one day as the entire state of New York and California combined. Just to understand the devastation of the locust plague that Judah was facing. A fourth way that plagues can invade our lives, letter D, is through profound discouragement. Sometimes it's a progression, and this is where we get. We go from devastation to distraction to destruction. We always land at discouragement, a profound discouragement. Look at verse number 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. You know, it's okay sometimes to admit 
the pain that you're experiencing. Uh, some people feel like anyone who um, admits that they're going through pain and tragedy and discomfort is a sign of weakness. But I would tell you, in fact, it's actually a sign of immense strength that you can talk about the things that you're going through in life, the devastation that you face, the storm that you're enduring. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 was so fed up with the people that he had to minister to and the fact that nothing ever went his way. You read through Jeremiah, he preached for 70 years, died at the age of 90, never saw any converts, never saw anyone walk an aisle. 70 years of ministry. And in Jeremiah 20, he says, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me because the name of the Lord was made a reproach to me. Therefore, I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. This is where Jeremiah got to, a series of profound discouragement that he faced. And many times in our tragedies, we can get there too. Consider this, the event in Judah's day, the locust plague, was not isolated to the poor. It was not isolated to the uneducated or the heathen God-haters. Some of the plagues that attacked Egypt uh, were only for Egypt. But this plague that attacked the people of God It didn't isolate the rich from the poor, the uneducated from the intellectual. Verse 9, it talks about the fact that the house of the Lord was affected. The priests and the ministers also mourned as well, like everyone else. Sometimes your coworkers probably think you don't go through anything bad because you're a Christian. Oh, you go to church on Sundays. You don't know what it's like to experience tragedy, but you do. We all feel profound discouragement sometimes when life falls apart. No one escaped the plague in Joel's day, and such is inevitable for each of us as well. Don't miss this point. God is involved in your discouragement and your disappointment. He's not just some casual onlooker that throws some trials down there to say, all right, I'm going to allow this one, and I'm going to arrange this one, and let's just see how they can fare. That's not what he does. He wants to be right here next to us while we go through the things that we go through. He wants to be with us in discouragement and with us in disappointment, in grief and in struggle because he has a plan and a purpose. And if we will allow him to make purpose of our plague, he will. That's what he wants. He's saying don't sell out for pennies on the dollar in the midst of your plague. I've seen this. You've seen this. You know what people are prone to doing when they go through a tragedy of life? Church people, Christians, people just like us. We are, we are prone to go through a tragedy, and the first thing we do is we want to quit church, or we want to quit small group, or we want to quit activity and social interactions with the very people who have been through the same things that we have, who can and want to help us. But what do we do? We cut off from those people, because we don't want to admit that we're going through something. We don't want to come across as weak and say, I don't have it all figured out. We need help. Joel tells us to stand firm and dig in. He says, hold on to your barren fields. I know you don't think that they're ever going to be able to reproduce like they did before, but it's my design for them to reduce even greater than they had. Your your fields will yield better than they ever have. Hold on to your fields. God has a promise in store for us. In fact, he wants it to be better than it was before. The plagues that Judah faced and the plagues that you are facing today Both of them have at least one redeemable quality in them, if nothing else, for the people of God, and that is this, that it would draw us back into relationship with Him. That's what God seeks to do in your tragedy. That's what He seeks to do in your plague. That's what He seeks to do in your discomfort and your anxiety and what you deal with. 
He wants to draw you back into a relationship with him. You ever talk to someone who, who lost a close family member, uh, maybe, a, maybe a parent or, or a spouse or a sibling or even a child, and they'll tell you years after the fact, I would not have asked for that trial, and I would not want to go through it again for anything, but I wouldn't trade what I learned in the process. I wouldn't trade anything for the relationship that I have with God now because he was with me in the storm and he's with me in the valley. I know he'll be with me on the mountain. But what we're tempted to do is we, we sell out for pennies on the dollar. I don't know your story and your situation. I certainly can't know all of the details that you're facing in your life, but I can tell you this. God may arrange it. He may allow it but it's not his design to ever waste it. Rather, he will use it as a means of drawing you closer to him. So don't fight it. You cannot control the locusts in your life. It's futile. I showed you a few clips in that video, but there, there were men and, and many other clips that I could have shown you of guys running around frantically with, with fishing nets. And they're running around trying to catch as many locusts as they possibly can. There are trillions and trillions of locusts, and they think that they're going to accomplish something with a fishnet. How many are they going to catch? How many are they going to fly through? Are they really going to stop the plague with this? But, but the videos, there, there were kids doing it, running around, chasing the locusts, trying to catch them in fishing nets. And I think sometimes when we go through something, this is what we're doing. Let's, let's just, let's mitigate this as much, as much as we possibly can. Yeah, I'm going through that, and yeah, I'm going through this, and it's futile. It's, it's like trying to chase the wind. We're never, we're never going to accomplish anything like this. We're beating the air. You cannot control the locust in your life any more than Judah could control theirs. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but it happened to us this morning. Desiree was here for practice, and I, I had the three kids, and one of my daughters came running into my room in a panic, and I just knew something was wrong. Someone has lost uh, a limb, or there's something awful wrong in my home. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, there's a spider in my room. And I thought, oh, I can take care of this. I'm a professional at getting spiders. And I said, go get me some tissue, and I'll take care of it. And I went in her room, and the spider was actually a little bit bigger than I had anticipated. But I, I got the spider, and I took care of it. And that's no problem. Could you imagine walking into your home when you get home from church today and walking into one of your room and there are thousands of spiders crawling around on the ground? I hope that's never happened to you. That would be like the worst, right? That would be awful. You imagine sitting in your living room and I don't know if your kids are like mine, but they, they leave the door open so we can air condition the entire neighborhood. They just leave the doors open. And, and, and one day, uh, this would be happening. This is at your house. You're sitting there in your living room. A back door is left open, and swarms of locusts come into your house. You would be in a panic. You wouldn't know what to do. You'd be looking for this fishing net. I'll tell you that. You'd do what you could. But what God is saying here is, hey, these are bugs, okay? I know they're bad. I know they're a nuisance. I know they're inconvenient for you. But this is literally the least of my power. This is the least of what I'm able to do is to send bugs your way. And it totally devastated this entire generation of crop. He's saying to us, let the process come and endure it for as long as it takes. Dark days may be ahead, but you're not alone. In those times, don't sell out, don't quit. Link arms with other people in this room. Link arms with other believers to walk through the trial with you. Perhaps the most notable time a locust plague was used was in the Exodus in God's people being in Egypt. It is the eighth plague that was used. 
8 in the Bible is always indicative of new beginnings. He was about to do something new in the nation of Israel as he marched toward the promised land. And in Joel's message, he was about to do something new with them as well. Could it be that the result of your trial is because God is ending one chapter of your life to help you walk into the next chapter? Could it be that he wants to do something new and needs to kick you out of the nest in order to do it and make you a little uncomfortable? What is he seeking to do in you that's new? The locust left the land bare. There was nothing left. And it is when God strips us of everything else and we have nothing left that he can bring restoration and redemption. I don't work that way. I can't do it. You don't work that way either. As much as you may think that you can, you can't do it. You can't bring restoration and healing on your own. But he can. What's the new beginning he's seeking to do in your life because of the plagues that you face? One writer said that hope is the first line of defense against loss. And I would remind you, hope does not come from God. It is only found in Him. It doesn't just come from Him. It's found in Him. It's not something that He gives. It's something that He is. It's a relationship with Him. It's not just, hey, I'm saved and I've got my fire escape to get out of hell card. That's not what it is. It's a relationship with Him. It's not just something He gives. It's something that He is. It's not come from Him. It's found in Him. Even in our context, 2,800 years later, Jesus doesn't just offer us hope. Jesus is hope. It's who he is. It's what he does. All right, Jason, only two main points. Number one was a drag. Do you have something better in number two? Nope. You can take that up with Joel. When times are tough, the last thing you want to hear is that life could get worse before it gets better. I would not be your friend if I were to tell you, hey, that trial you're going through, it's the only one you're going to have in this life. It's going to be smooth sailing from here. Hey, you commit your life to following Jesus and him alone, great. It's going to be smooth sailing from this point on. Never going to have any of the tragedies come your way. I would not be your friend if I told you that. If number one was subtitled, could things get any worse? Number two can be subtitled worse. Number one is ruin. Number two this morning is rebuke rebuke. You found that oftentimes things get worse before they can get better? Joel found this to be true. On top of their ruin, they would now endure rebuke. We read this a moment ago in verses 11 and 12. Look there again. Be shamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the field languishes. The remainder of Joel's first chapter of rebuke is dedicated to the people of God. From this point, I want to highlight three responses to rebuke that they faced and that we can also face even in the midst of personal tragedy. Letter A is the word acceptance. Acceptance. Verse 13 says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the Lord. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Acceptance. I don't want to accept it. I don't want to accept that, that someone I love is dealing with a sickness that I don't understand. I don't want to accept that, that this person who's always been there for me is now gone. 
I don't want to accept that this is the new normal. I don't want to accept that this is my life now. I don't want to accept the tragedy that I'm having to face today. I don't want to accept it. This isn't, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. You ever thought that? This is supposed to be happening to other people. This is supposed to be something I read about that somebody else on Facebook is dealing with. This is not supposed to happen to me. My family, my career, my plans, my dreams. This is not supposed to happen to me. By putting on sackcloth and lamenting, we are accepting what has happened to us. He continues, spend the night because this is the new normal. By the way, the people to whom he's specifically addressing here is not the populace. It's the ministers and the priests. These are the spiritual elite. These are the, the people who are in church leadership. These are those who have been in the faith for a while now. These weren't spiritual novices, okay? These were people who knew the lingo. They knew what they had been called to accept and they didn't want to. There are people in this room today who have been a believer and a follower of Jesus longer than I've been alive. These are the people he's talking to. You've been around the block a little bit with your faith. He's addressing these people, not spiritual novices. I spent some time recently over the last two years with some of our missionaries and some of our church planters uh, that are ministering all over the country and all over the world. And, and I started to hear a repetitive theme with many of them. One thing I'll say to you know, our church planters that, that I get to visit, I'll say, um, is there a way that we at Triad can, can partner with you in a better way? What can we pray with you about? What are you going through? What, what's been your experience ministering to people here? How can we help? What do you want to talk about? And I started seeing a theme that many of them said things like, my people are leaving me. That's discouraging. I don't know what to say to a guy who's pastored a, a particular church in an area that uh, has people that keep leaving him, leaving him for another church or, or leaving him for another town or, or leaving them and just not going anywhere. We talked about that. And one thing I said to, to some of these guys is the fact that life is seasonal. And I said, you know, eventually, everyone leaves you. Only Jesus remains. Now, I don't know if you found that to be true in your life, but some of you have lost parents and grandparents, and they've, they've left you. One day, your, your kids are going to leave you. They're going to leave your home. My kids are 10 and 8 and 3, so that's not really a crushing thought to me today as I think about them one day growing up and leaving me. But the same couldn't be said of a mom who's, senior just graduated high school this past week, or, or one that's got a, got a 20-year-old who's headed out on their own to start a life all by themselves. You know, my parents are going to leave. My grandparents are going to leave. Our kids are going to leave. And the truth is that friends will leave you too. Church people will leave. Ministry leaders will leave. Co-workers will leave. Family members will leave. Perhaps your spouse has left or someone close to you. It's a depressing thought, but eventually, everybody leaves us. Only Jesus remains. That's why he says, I want to be with you in the plague. Eventually, everyone leaves because life is seasonal. God has brought all of us together for a season, and someday this season will end. Verse 13, he says, put on sackcloth and lament. O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in past the night, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. This plague was so devastating that there was nothing left for them to even offer God a sacrifice. You guys want to have communion? Can't. We got nothing. We got nothing to worship God with. The, the drink offering, the meat offering, it's all gone. 
This plague affected their worship. We've experienced that over the past three years. Social distancing, online only, Zoom calls, it's not the same. Joel says in verse 14, let's call a fast. Let's get everyone together and cry out to God. It wasn't easy, but Judah was accepting the position that they were in. Letter A is acceptance. Letter B under this point is acknowledgement. Acknowledgement. Acceptance is, I've accepted what's happened to me. But acknowledgement is, I'm understanding my role in it. I understand what it means. It's more than acceptance. Acceptance is, this is my new reality. But acknowledgement sometimes is, I've not done what I should have done, or lived how I should have lived, or worshipped, or served, or surrendered as I should have. Now, here I am. More than acceptance, acknowledgement is responsibility. Verse 15, he says, alas for the day. Joel is calling for repentance in his rebuke of the nation of Judah. And he says, you think this is bad? These are bugs. These are locusts. This is the very least of my power and its extent. Joel is foreshadowing a greater judgment and a greater destruction to a people that's not living as they should. He's foreshadowing the people who will ultimately reject Jesus. There will be a day in the future, I still believe in the future, when God will separate. And you will see those who accepted Jesus and those who rejected Jesus. They needed to acknowledge their role in the plague, but also acknowledge the might of God's coming wrath. Symbolically, the day of the Lord was in reference to God's ultimate judgment on evil. There is still coming a day when God will be the ultimate judge on evil. That day is still in the future. Joel pleads, wake up to what's happening all around you. It's not about what's been done, but there's judgment still to come. Look at verse 16. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. Verse 17 is important. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. In verse 17, Joel mentions three items that are significant. The seed, the storehouses, and the granaries. The King James calls these the seed, the garners, and the barns. The storehouses represent the past reserves. This is all that they had gathered up in years of plenty. This is our reserves. This was the, the 401k of what we've had. We've gathered it up. We've saved it. We've stored it. This is the past reserves. That's what the storehouses were. The granaries represent the crops for today. This was immediate access. We don't need it all the time. We need it immediately, day to day. This is the groceries. This was the food in the fridge and the food in the pantry. This is what we're going to eat today and this week. And then he says the seed. The seed represents future crops. This is what has not yet been planted, but will serve future generations. And in verse 17, Joel says they're rotten, desolate, withered, shriveled up, gone. Have you ever been there in your life? You feel like, God, I have nothing left. The past, everything I've saved up for, it's gone. The present, I can't see how I'm going to get out of this situation today. The future, boy, it once looked bright with hope, and now it's bleak. The past memories are tainted because of what's happened in a relationship. The present day-to-day -day life seems meaningless and pointless and futile. The, the future that once looked bright has now been shattered. I don't know your story. Some people have been shattered in this room this month. 
I talked to a guy not too long ago on the phone. His life has been shattered over the last two or three weeks. He has no future. Everything past, present, and future. He, 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 is, he says there's no point to his life. This is why depression and anxiety are major health problems in our culture today. Suicide rates have never been higher. And they're not just high with people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that have chronic pain. They're high among 15-year-olds. They're high among 21-year-olds. They're high among 27-year-olds. We're living in a culture that has been stripped away of all that we hold dear and offers us no hope in return. Even nature has been disrupted by the plague. This of what Joel's people are experiencing is unfamiliar territory. Life has become frighteningly unpredictable. But here's the lesson that we have to learn in this. This is when it all starts coming to a head. Trusting God means that we are believing that His purpose is greater than our loss. I can't make sense of what you're going through. If I were to sit and listen to all of you individually, tell me your trial, tell me your story, tell me your plague, I can promise you I'm not going to be able to make sense of all of it. I may not be able to make sense of any of it. But trusting God means we are believing that His purpose is greater than our loss. How can this be greater? God, with what I'm sitting with today, how can this be any good? You can't see it today. And the reason you can't see it today is because you're not supposed to see it today. How can God ever use the broken and shattered pieces of what is left of my life and make something good? I don't know. But trusting God means you're believing that His purpose is greater than our loss. It wouldn't be fair to leave us there. So I'll offer a final response to the ruin and rebuke in your life. Letter C is the word action. Action. Verses 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the fields pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness. This is not only the proper response to rebuke, when it comes to God, this is the only response. This is all we have left is to take action and to cry out to God on our behalf. This is our only way of hope when faced with disaster. Again, hope is not something God gives. Hope is something that God is. It's relational. It's not a reward. It's a relationship. It's not found in his provision and what he can give to you as a result of what you face. It's not provision, it's presence. It's I want to be standing there with you in the trial as you go through the worst pain of your life. Sometimes things will get worse before they get better. This is where Judah is. And as if the locust plague wasn't bad enough to destroy their crops, now there was drought. Now there was wildfire to burn up what was left. Joel is instructing his people here not to be defined by the plague of your life. Rather, be defined by the purpose God has for you in it. We all know of people who have been through something awful, awful, and they have allowed that plague to define the rest of their lives. This is just who I am now. This is just what I do. This is just the lot that I drew. These are the cards I was dealt. We all know people like that. They had a plague, they had a tragedy, they had a trial, and they've lived the rest of their lives allowing that to define who they are. Joel says, don't be defined by the plague in your life. Be defined by the purpose that God has for you in it. 
Judah did not need Joel to come tell them how bad things were. You don't need me to tell you how bad things are. Just look outside. You'll, you'll see the plague. Go to Target. You'll see it. Get in our education system. You'll, you'll see it. You'll see how bad things are going to get. You don't need me to tell you. He says, don't be defined by the plague. Instead, reflect and mourn on what you've lost, but take action, or else you'll miss the significance of what God is trying to do in the plague. Could it be that maybe that's the reason why you're going through a plague in the first place? Is because God wants to do something new in you and he wants to draw you close to himself and he wants to show you something in the plague that you would never have seen otherwise. I got to tell you, my mountaintop Christianity is not always as close to God as I am in the valley. You go through some stuff, you get in the valley, you'll find God in a real way. Don't just mourn the loss of innocence in this culture and how you're having to parent your children now that you weren't parented when you were a kid because it wasn't that way 20, 30 years ago. Don't just mourn the loss. Take action. Get on the offensive. Embrace the pain and rebuke. It doesn't mean you'll enjoy it, but be willing for God to use it for his purposes as a tool that will change us. You cannot change the plagues that you face. You're going to be running around with this the rest of your life, trying to gather up water, gather up wind, gather up locusts. You can't control the plagues of your life. But in the plague, God can change you. Could it be that that's the purpose of the plague all along? Is for God to not change your circumstances, but rather to change you as a result of the circumstances that you face? I would encourage you today, don't throw up your hands and quit just yet. Hold on just a little bit longer because I believe that God has purpose in the pain that you're going through. Let's pray. We're going to have an invitation in a moment. We're going to sing one more song. During that time, I want to address two people in this invitation. Just two people. Person number one, person number two. Person number one is experiencing the plague of sin. Your life has been shattered by sin, and you may not even fully understand that. You're experiencing a personal separation from God and if you've tried to fill that void with everything else imaginable and nothing has satisfied the longing that you have. I'll never forget years ago listening to an interview after Tom Brady had won his third Super Bowl and they said, Tom, what's next? And he said, I, I don't know. He said, I feel like there's got to be more than life than this. He's right. Person number one, your, your life has been plagued by sin. But I have good news for you. Jesus came and lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he invites you into a relationship with God all because of Jesus. Salvation is not membership. Rather, it's a relationship. It's a fellowship. It's a stewardship. Jesus does not invite you to add him to what you already have. He invites you to replace the old. He wants to redeem you from the plague of sin. There are a million ways to get to Jesus, but Jesus is the only way to get to God. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Today, if you will accept him by faith, he will save you from your sin. 
Just in the quietness of their moment, is there any, anyone here today that would say, Jason, I know I can't save myself, but I, I need Jesus. I want a relationship with him. I want someone standing next to me when I go through the trials that I will in my life. Is there anyone here today that would say, Jason, I do not have a relationship with Jesus, but I know that I need one. If you'd slip your hand up for me just for a moment, all I'll do is pray for you. Anyone like that at all this morning? I know I need to have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, the second person I want to address, they're experiencing the plague of suffering. Your life has been shattered by misfortune after misfortune, and you can't even see God because of the swarm of locusts that you're facing. Maybe someone you love is sick. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a family member. Maybe your marriage is failing. A child is far from God. Your depression and anxiety is mounting. Your finances are crumbling. Your future is uncertain. You can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. All you see in front of you is more locusts. Can I just say to you today, you cannot change the plagues that you face. But in the plague, God can change you. I would encourage you today, don't waste your plague. Don't throw up your hands and quit just yet. Hold on a little bit longer because I believe that God has purpose in your pain. Father, I pray that you'd be with the closing moments of this service. God, you've seen our hearts. You know where we live. You know where we're at. God, if there's one here today that does not know you as their personal Savior, I pray that today would be the day they put their trust in you and you alone. God, for those of us facing tragedies and trials and plagues, I pray that we would give those to you. I pray that you may not be so quick to change the plagues as you are quick to change us and to make us into the people you would have us to be as a result of the trials that we face. And God, that we would find purpose in the pain. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, if you will, all over the room. Praise Band is going to sing one final song. The altar's open. If you need to come, you need someone to pray with you, go to someone close to you. Ask them to pray with you this morning. If you're going through something, I pray that you would find purpose in the pain.